0: This is episode three of the Family Captain Podcast with special guest, my firstborn, Elijah Fane Clark, and me, John Michael Clark. Good evening, Bubba. Hello. Picking up where we left off in endurance last week, A, a, a flow had broken apart, a man had fallen in, Shackleton had pulled him apart, pulled him up out of the Weddell Sea, right as the floe smacked back together, which would, of course, crush and kill the man. Now they're moving all their supplies onto one side. A line was pitched across, and the two little groups of men, pulling toward one another, managed to bring the halves together once more. The Caird was hurriedly shoved across, and then men leaped onto the larger floe. Shackleton waited until the others were safe, but by the time it was his turn, the pieces had drifted apart again. He took hold of the rope and tried to bring his chunk closer, but with only one man pulling, it was useless. Within ninety seconds, he had disappeared into the darkness. For what seemed like a very long interval, no one spoke. Then, from the darkness, they heard Shackleton's voice. "'Launch a boat,' he called. Wilde had just given the order. The Wills was slid into the water and a half dozen volunteers scrambled on board. They put out their oars and rowed hard toward Shackleton's voice. Finally, they saw his outline again in the darkness. They pulled alongside his floe. He jumped into the wills, and they returned to their campsite. Sleep now was out of the question. Shackleton ordered the blubber stove lighted. Then he turned his attention to the wholeness, to Wholeness, who was shivering uncontrollably in his soaped clothes. But there weren't any dry garments to give him because their only dry clo- their only clothes were the ones they were wearing. To prevent Holness from freezing, Shackleton ordered that he be kept moving until his own clothes dried. For the rest of the night, the men took turns walking up and down with him. His companions could hear the crackling of his frozen garments and the tinkle of the icy crystals that fell from him. Though he made no complaint about his clothes, Holness grumbled for hours over the fact that he had lost his tobacco in the water. Guy <laughs> falls into the ICC, his only complaint. Man, no more cigarettes for me. So Shackleton, lost to the darkness on his own little flow, <laughs> drifting away.
1: The definition of stress.
0: Endure, endure, endure. The name of this book is Endurance. And if you listen to the last episode... Uh, You already know that that is a perfect title given to this book. And just when you think it can't get any worse, what does it do, Bubba? It
1: gets a lot worse. (laughs) It
0: gets worse over and over. And you're like, surely this is it. Like, surely they're about to get a break. And then you're blown away because instead of getting a break, it goes worse for them somehow, some way. It just keeps happening. So this is funny. You know, we talk about leadership, and we think about the leader's sacrifices, and the leader always does whatever it takes, and that's true, but the leader also takes care of themselves, right? So I'm tempted to think in Christian culture, if we were to teach this, if we were to hear a similar story, it would go like, and the leader drifted off onto his own little flow, and that was it, rather than risking the group to come and get him, (laughs) He just said, well, such is my fate. This is something I see a lot in men's groups, in Christian culture. It's this idea that I need to always, always, always suffer for the group. To which I would say, well, sure, if there has to be some suffering, of course, we need to be the first in line. That is the responsibility of the leader. It's men before women. It's women before children. So in the context of marriage, it's husband before wife. And then, of course, it's parents before children. If we have to line up for some suffering, I'm going to be at the first of the line. And I'm going to do my darndest to make sure that nobody else has to suffer. But if somebody else has to suffer, who do you think is going to be next in line?
1: Your wife or my mom.
0: Yeah, she's actually, you can say mama. You don't Ma- have to say my your mom, wife. My mom. I'm asking you. Right. So she's going to be the next in line. But in Christian culture, unfortunately, you've heard me talk about this a lot, that we almost just, we want to fall on the sword, even when you don't have to fall on the sword. The sensible thing right here is to do exactly what Shackleton did. Hey, launch a boat, knuckleheads, come and get me. (laughs) It's not the end of the world. Just come and get me. I'm right over here. And yeah, uh, we'll have to figure out what's next. So let's go back to the book. So throughout the night their flow has become surrounded with a bunch of other ice. And then they finally wake up and they they begin to see this. The sea was a broken the sea was broken by a nasty chop which made the boats lurch heavily. So they were finally able to launch the boats. The the ice drifted away from them, thankfully, and they were able to launch the boats. But it made rowing extremely difficult. Before long the ice began to open up and within an hour or so they found themselves in a vast expanse of ice free water, so broad They could hardly see the pack to to either side. It was a welcome sight after more than a year of looking at nothing but ice. So here they are. They're out in the water, finally getting after it. Row, row, row your boat. Let's get some progress. Let's take matters into our own hands. So they're continuing. They realized that they must be in in the middle of open ocean. Ironically, Here was the moment that they had dreamed of ever since the days of ocean camp, but the reality was vastly different from the dream. As soon as the boats emerged from this protective barrier of the pack, they were struck by the full force of the wind, and a high breaking sea was running down from the northeast. Freezing spray burst all over them as they tried to beat their way to the north-northeast under sail. Time after time, Icy blasts whipped them across the face and the penetrating wind seemed all the colder because of their lack of sleep. So they're struggling. It's misery. It's awful. Um, A few of them are seasick. And, you know, it goes into detail about the icy water and how it broke over each of the particular boats. Remember, these are 22-foot boats. If you've ever been on the water, if you've ever been on rough waters, of course, that's all relative depending on the size of the boat you're in. But a 22-foot boat, that's a small boat. If you're not familiar with the water at all, that's a small boat in any kind of chop. But you put it in the open ocean, and what are some of the, the roughest seas on the planet? Things get really, really, really challenging. So we're moving ahead. They're continuing to struggle, continuing to move forward. And the goal is to make it to land. They're still trying to pursue these little islands to the north. And ultimately, they want to leave those islands in uh, one of their lifeboats and then go to South Georgia, where they had initially last left civilization. So that's the plan. At sunrise, they awakened to a terrifying spectacle of nature. During the night, the wind had risen almost to gale force, and from somewhere to the northeast, great quantities of pack had drifted down on them. Now it extended unbroken to the horizon in every direction. Berg fragments and shattered flows in 10,000 different shapes obliterated the surface of the water. And out of the northwest, rollers 30 feet high, stretching from horizon to horizon, swept down through the pack in long lines a half a mile apart. At their summits, the floe berg was lifted to what seemed like dizzying heights, then dropped into valleys from which the horizon was obscured. The air was filled with a dull, muddled roar. The low shriek of the wind and the seas breaking hoarsely amongst the pack, along with the incessant booming grind of the ice. So they are on a little berg that they finally had to get on for the night. Uh, You know, they row during the day, they're trying to navigate, ice will show up out of nowhere, and now they've gotten on a berg in the night, but it has been deteriorating throughout the night. Remember this part? And it just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller.
1: And so they wake up and it's all choppy?
0: They wake up. Uh, they try to sleep. They wake up and it's worse and worse and worse. This was precisely the situation Shackleton had feared since the first since first appearance of the swell at patients' Camp. The berg was crumbling beneath them and it might split or upend at any moment. And yet to launch the boats would have been idiocy. They would have been splintered to bits in 90 seconds. The whole scene had a kind of horrifying fascination. The men stood by, tense and altogether aware that in the next instant they might be flung into the sea to be crushed or drowned or to, be, or to flounder in the icy water until the spark of life was chilled from their bodies. And yet the grandeur of the spectacle before them was undeniable. Watching it, many of them sought to put their feeling into words, but they could find no words that were adequate. The lines of Tennyson's Mort de Arthur kept running through Macklin's head. I never saw nor shall see here or elsewhere till I die. Not though I live three times the lives of mortal men. So great a miracle. So it's crazy. And Shackleton is up on this section looking around, looking for a break. So as the flows are drifting past them, he's looking for an opening, like a pond section that they could launch the boats into and then drift in this pond section. While they waited, the berg was being systematically destroyed, piece by piece. Late in the morning, a huge sea burst against it, and a 20-foot section slipped into the water, leaving a half-submerged shelf of ice before. So it's just still same old breaking, same old hours are going by, hours are going by. Finally, Shackleton's looking. There was an excited shout. A pool was opening in the opposite direction. They turned and stared. What they saw was almost beyond belief. The ice was mysteriously drawing away, as if under the influence of some invisible force. As they looked, eddies and swirls riffled the surface of the water. A freak current had apparently risen from the depths of the sea and had been deflected against the deep underside of the berg. They jumped up and down, pointed, pointing and gesturing wildly toward the pool of inky water it was widening from beyond the bird launch the boats shackleton cried as he raced down from his perch chunk in the stores any old way anxious hands seize the boat so now they're they're able to launch they're able to get back into this water they launch into what really is this little pool and they're trying to navigate this open water around them and now finally they're getting back into open water Worsley estimated that it had been two days since the last observation and during that time strong winds of the northeast had probably blown the party a considerable distance to the west. Furthermore, the greatest quantities of open water now extended to the southwest toward King George Island, 80 odd miles away. Shackleton made the decision on the spot. They would abandon the effort to reach Clarence or Elephant Island and take advantage of the following wind to make for King George Island. So they're just victims They're like, all right, we're going for this island. And then the ice and the wind change things up. It goes, okay, now we're going for this island. So they've got three islands that they could try for, but they're still at the mercy of nature and what's going to happen around them. So it was the more desirable destination. Anyhow, both Clarence and Elephant Islands were more remote and so far as Shackleton knew, had never been visited. But from King George Island, a series of island to go of, of island to island voyages, the longest of which was 19 miles would be, would carry the party ultimately to Deception Island, some a hundred miles beyond here. The remains of a volcano's cone made an excellent Harbor. And the place was a frequent port of call for whalers where there was thought to be a cache of food at Deception Island for the use of castaways. But most important, there was a small rude chapel there built by the whalers Even if no ships stopped at the island, Shackleton was sure they could tear down the church and use its lumber to build a boat large enough to accommodate all of them. So that's the thought. He thought they were just excited because they were going to have chapel services. (laughs) Shackleton thinking, obviously, we'll tear it down and we'll build a boat and we'll be able to get out of here, all of us together.
1: Yeah. When I first read it, I was like, wow, they must really love God. But I thought, wait, wait, hold on.
0: (laughs) So in the boats is misery. In the boat is just awful nightmare. They're trying to stay warm. They're taking turns at the oars. They're struggling. They're rowing. They're waiting, you know, to be able to take sights with the sextant. About 3 a.m., suddenly the entire party was suddenly electrified by an almost hysterical shout from Hudson. A light! A light! He was pointing to the northwest. Every man sat upright, staring off into the direction Hudson indicated. The excitement lasted only one cruel moment until they were alert enough to realize the absurdity of it. They settled down again, cursing Hudson for his stupidity, for for having raised their hopes. So the guy, he's like, I saw something. And then he's mumbling to himself, I know I saw something. And they're all just angry at him. Frustrating times. Difficult. Issues that they're facing right now, so about ten thirty, Worsley took out his sextant, bracing himself against the mass of the doctor. He carefully took his sight the first since leaving patients' camp at noon, he repeated the procedure as the boats lay awaiting the results. Every face turned toward Worsley as he sat in the bottom of the docker, working out his figures. They watched to see his expression when the two lines of position were plotted for a fix. It took him much longer than usual, and, and gradually a puzzled look came over his face. He checked his calculations over, and the expression of puzzlement gave way to one of worry. Once more, he ran through his computations. Then he slowly raised his head. Shackleton had brought the carrot alongside the docker, and Worsley showed him the position. They were 124 miles nearly due east of King George Island and 60 miles, 61 miles southeast. Of Clarence Island, 22 miles farther from land than when they had launched the boats from Patient Camp three days before. They continually sailed west with strong easterly winds driving them along, and yet they had actually been going in the opposite direction. They were 20 miles east from where they started and 50 miles east of where they had thought they were. The news was so heartbreaking, some of the men refused to believe it. It couldn't be. Worsley had made a mistake. But no, he obtained a third sight early in the afternoon, which showed that Joinville Island, which had dropped from sight two weeks before, was now only eighty miles away. Some unknown and undetectable easterly current had caught them, a current of such tremendous strength that it had driven them backward into the teeth of a gale. To reach King George Island, King George Island would mean sailing directly into that current, So for the third time, Shackleton announced that the destination had been changed. This time it became Hope Bay, about 130 miles away at the tip of the Palmer Peninsula beyond Joinville Island. So again, fighting discouragement. Just the, you're building hope, you're working. Feels like we're finally making progress. And and now they don't. So they had a terrible night. But the dawn did come at last, and in its light, the strain of the long dark hours showed on every face. Cheeks were drained and white, eyes were bloodshot from the salt spray, and the fact that the men had only slept once in the past four days. Matted beards had caught the snow and frozen into a mass of white. Shackleton searched their faces for an answer to the question that troubled him most. How much more could they take? There was no single answer, some men looked on the point of breaking, while others showed an unmistakable determination to hold out. At least all of them had survived the night. Shortly after sunrise, the wind swung round to the southeast and freshened considerably. Shackleton called to Worsley to bring the docker alongside the Caird After a hurried conference, they announced that, for the fourth time, the destination was changed. In view of the southeast wind, they would run for Elephant Island, Once more, now 100 miles to the northwest, and pray God the wind held fair till they arrived. So they had some shelter from the ice as they were making progress, and then eventually they emerged from this big pack, and they're just victims of the wind again. Brutal wind. It's pushing them along. Within minutes, they were struggling up a hill of water whose face was a quarter mile long. At its summit, the wind shrieked, blowing the spray into thin, feathery lines. Then they started down, a slow but steep descent into the valley, leading to the next swell. Over and over the cycle was repeated. Before long, the pack was lost from sight, and occasionally, one or another of the boats disappeared behind one of these enormous rolling hills of water. It was as if they had emerged into infinity, They had an ocean to themselves, a desolate, hostile vastness. Shackleton thought of the lines, Coleridge, alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea. They made a pitiable sight, three little boats, packed with the odd remnants of what had once been a proud expedition, bearing twenty-eight suffering men in one final, almost ludicrous bid for survival. But this time, There was to be no turning back, and they all knew it. So they continue, and now they've had another awful night. Never was there a worse night. As the darkness deepened, the wind increased, and the temperature dropped lower and even lower. Again, an actual reading was impossible, but it was probably at least as low as eight below zero. It was so cold that the seas that broke over them froze almost as soon as they hit, Even before the darkness was complete, it became apparent that the sea anchor could not hold them into the wind effectively. The boats continually dropped off into the trough of the waves where they were swept broadside by the seas. The boats, the men, everything was soaked, then frozen. Most of the men tried to shelter themselves under the tent cloths, but the wind repeatedly tore them loose. To keep their feet from freezing, They worked their toes constantly inside their boots. They could only hope that the pain in their feet would continue because comfort, as much as they yearned for it, would mean that they were freezing. After a time, it took extreme concentration for them to keep wriggling their toes. It would have been so terribly easy just to stop. As the hours dragged by and their agony deepened, the men in the docker, fought back with the single pitifully ridiculous weapon they had. Curses. They cursed everything cursible: The sea, the boat, the spray, the cold, the wind, and often one another. There was a kind of pleading tone to their curses, though, as if they were prayerfully appealing for deliverance from this wet and freezing misery. Most of all, they cursed Ord Lee's, who had got hold of the only set of oilskins and refused to give them up. He maneuvered himself into the most comfortable position in the boat by shoving Marston out, and he would not move. He either ignored or was oblivious to the oaths flung at him. After a while, Marston gave up and made his way to the stern, where he sat down alongside Worsley at the tiller. So now it talks about how they also had to pee a lot during the night and the physician's suspicion was that they were staying so wet and absorbing moisture through the skin um i don't know if that's even possible but um they were leaning over the boat they had they also had terrible diarrhea from their diet of uncooked pemmican so they would suddenly have to rush to the side and holding fast to a shroud sit on the frozen gunnel invariably The icy sea wet them from beneath. So the water is knee-deep in some of the boats, and things are just brutal. Blackboro, so this was the castaway, you'll remember, the guy who snuck on?
1: Yeah, they're going to eat if they run out of food.
0: Right, well, yeah, that was Shackleton's original threat to him. But remember, he's just a part of the group. Like He's not the castaway, he's not the guy who snuck on, he's just uh, another one of the men. Blackborough, who had insisted on wearing leather boots to save his felt pair for what he thought would be the future, lost all feeling in his feet after several hours. Not good. So the Wills is struggling, and uh, it's the least seaworthy of the three boats. Shackleton is in the caird, and they draw them together. They They tie the Wills to the caird. And they're trying to keep all three boats together, but it's difficult. And now it says, The line between the wills and the Carrot alternately tightened and slacked, dropping into the water and rising into the bitter cold air each time. As the hours passed, it accumulated an ever-thickening coat of ice. The lives of the eight men aboard the wills depended upon that line. If it parted, and it seemed almost certain to, the wills would fall off into the trough of the sea and be swamped long before her crew could beat off the ice beat the ice off the sail and hoist it all the boats were thick with ice but the wills was weighted down like a log the seas poured on board her flowing over the pile of sleeping bags in the bow and leaving them sheathed in ice ice formed in masses around her bow as she dipped into each sea weighting her down that much more so that every half hour or oftener the men had to be sent forward to beat the ice off her bow, lest she go under. Finally, for all the party, there was thirst. They had left the pack so abruptly and unexpectedly that they had failed to take on board any ice to be melted into water. There had been nothing to drink since the previous morning, and men were beginning to crave water desperately. Their mouths were dry, and their frost-bitten lips began to swell and crack. Some men When they tried to eat, found it impossible to swallow, and their hunger brought on seasickness. And now finally, as the sun climbed a fraction higher, they saw off the starboard bow the peaks of Clarence Island, and a little later, Elephant Island dead ahead, the promised land, no more than thirty miles away. In the joy of that moment, Shackleton called to Worsley to congratulate him on his navigation, and Worsley, stiff with cold, looked away in proud embarrassment. They would land by nightfall, provided that not a moment was lost. Shackleton, impatient to be on the move, gave the order to get underway immediately. But it was not that simple. The light of dawn revealed the results of the night. Many faces were marked by the ugly white rings of frostbite, and almost Everyone was afflicted by saltwater boils that gave off a gray, curd-like discharge when they broke. Shackleton was then notified that Blackborough's feet apparently were gone because he was unable to restore circulation in them. And Shackleton himself looked haggard. His voice, which was usually strong and clear, had grown hoarse with exhaustion. So all the boats are iced up. Everybody's in the worst possible condition they've been since this whole thing ever got started. They're trying to untie the sea anchor. Two of the men are. Cheatham and Holness leaned over the bow of the docker, trying to untie the icy knot in the rope with fingers so stiff they could hardly move while they worked. The docker rose to a sea, then pitched downward. Holness failed to pull his head away, and two of his teeth were knocked out on the sea anchor. Tears welled in his eyes, rolled down into his beard, and froze there. Two men gave up trying to untie the sea anchor. They cut it loose and brought it, ice and all, on board.
1: Really feels like the Weddell Sea doesn't like Honus. I mean, what else he, happened to him? He almost got crushed like a bug. Oh, right. Two, that was Honus. Yeah. two close.
0: <sighs> so here they are, trying to make it. Hour after hour they rowed, and the outline of Ele- Elephant Island slowly grew larger. At noon, They had covered almost half the distance. By one thirty. they were less than 15 miles away. They had no sleep for almost 80 hours, and their bodies had been drained by exposure and effort of almost the last vestige of vitality. But the conviction that they had to land by nightfall gave rise to a strength born of desperation. It was pull or perish, and ignoring their sickening thirst... They leaned on their oars with what seemed like the last of their strength. By 2 p.m., the snowy 3,500 foot peaks of Elephant Island rose steeply out of the water, dead ahead, probably no more than 10 miles off. But an hour later, the island was still in the same position, hanging there, no closer, and yet no farther away. So they're trying to make it. They're trying, but these huge, huge winds are just pouring off the cliffs. So, these cliffs are creating some kind of suction from the winds above, and the winds above are being drawn down off the cliffs which meet the water, and they shoot off the cliffs straight to the water. so the closer you get to Elephant Island, the harder it is to get to Elephant Island because the wind pushes you hundred hundred mile an hour winds are pushing them as they try and get closer
1: so the gales and the ice and the and every and the currents are literally. Trying to make sure they do not get to their destination.
0: Right. Shackleton, for once, agreed to the separation. At least he granted Worsley permission to proceed independently. So now he's saying, look, like all three boats trying to make it together, Worsley's like, let us try and go separately. And Shackleton reluctantly lets him go. The wills, however, was kept fast astern to the caird, and Shackleton admonished Worsley to do everything in his power to stay within sight. It was dark by the time the docker cast off. The island was close, but just how close was now impossible to tell. Maybe ten miles, probably less. High in the sky was a ghostly pale white image. The light of the moon shining through the clouds, reflecting back from the glaciers on the island. It was all they had to steer by as the boats pounded forward across the sea. At times the wind was so strong they had to let go of the lines holding the sails to avoid capsizing. The men in the Caird crouched low to escape the driving spray, but in the docker, and especially in the wills, there was no escape. Those who were steering took the worst punishment of all. And about eight o'clock, the strain began to tell on Wild, who had been at the Caird's tiller for twenty-four hours without relief. Shackleton ordered, ordered McNeish to take over, but the carpenter himself was very nearly exhausted. After about half an hour at the tiller, Though the icy wind tore at his clothing and the spray stung him in the face and soaked him through, McNeish's head slumped forward and he fell asleep. Instantly, the Caird's stern swung to leeward and a huge wave swept over them. It awakened McNeish, but Shackleton ordered Wild to resume the helm. So they're getting closer, they're getting closer, and then mysteriously, they begin to lose ground. And now... Uh, About midnight, Shackleton glanced to starboard and saw that the docker was gone. He jumped to his feet and peered intently across the stormy waters. So now they try and signal. Shackleton is uh, lighting a, a lamp to try and get the docker to signal back. We find out that the docker later was trying to signal back, but they had plenty of issues, plenty of problems to deal with on their own. So they were never able to indicate, hey, we're okay, we're here. They're about a half a mile away, no more than that. And their boats trying to navigate around this island in the pitch black of night, hoping they don't run aground upon some reef. And the fear is also that they don't get blown out to sea, because they can't quite tell where they are. They had been in the boats now for five and a half days, and during that time almost everyone had come to look upon Worsley in a new light. In the past he had been thought of as an excitable and wild, even irresponsible. But all that it was changed now. During these past days, he had exhibited an almost phenomenal ability, both as a navigator and in the demanding skill of handling a small boat. There wasn't another man in the party even comparable with him, and he had assumed an entirely new stature because of it. Now, seated at the tiller, his head began to nod. Macklin saw him going and offered to take over. Worsley agreed. But when he tried to go for it, he found he could not straighten out his body. He had sat for almost six days in the same position. McLeod and Marston came aft and pulled him to the stern, dragging him over the seats in cases of stores. Then they laid him down in the bottom of the boat and rubbed his thighs and stomach until his muscles began to loosen. By then, he was asleep. So now we're with the docker and, you know, the boat that's on their own, separate. And they're going through the night trying to hold this thing against the wind, trying to point with what they're hoping is the correct direction towards the island. But they've got the great fear that they've just been blown out to sea during the night and through this little gap, which means between this and another island. And if that's what's happened, it's over. They'll be they'll be lost at sea forever because the wind won't push them back. But gradually the surface of the sea became discernible and they're dead ahead. So they're finally getting enough daylight were the enormous gray-brown cliffs of Elephant Island rising out of the mists. sheer from the water high above the boat and less than a mile away, the distance seemed no more than a few hundred yards. There was no great joy in that moment, only a feeling of astonishment, which soon gave way to a sense of tremendous relief. They get swamped with a gigantic wave. The boat sinks, the water is up to their knees, and they are sinking, and they go, they bail like crazy. They finally get it bailed. Another wave comes in, does the same thing. Gradually, they get it emptied out. Worsley took the tiller and turned north to run before the gale, with the seas pursuing the boat from astern. He guided her close inshore, just under the lofty glaciers fringing the island. Pieces of ice floated amongst the waves, and the men leaned over the sides of the boat as the boat drove past and scooped them up with their hands. A moment later, they were chewing and sucking greedily as the delicious water was running down their throats. So this is freshwater ice from the glaciers. Throughout the night, Shackleton on board the Carrot had kept watch for the docker. As the hours passed, his anxiety mounted. He had faith in Worsley's seamanship, but such as an, such a night demanded something more than skill. So now it tells us about the, the other two boats, and their night, and how they finally uh, make it close to the island. Hudson, the one who is steering, is got a terrible pain in his butt. Awful, awful pain from sitting and steering the way he's been. And um, so it's telling about different issues that different people are having. Um, they're trying to take turns. They're trying to take sights. They're trying to deal with making it through, but bailing is now a constant issue in the wheels, which is the worst of the boats. Just It's just one of the constant chores. It's just bailing constantly to make sure we don't go under. Black feet were long since the point of hurting. He never complained, though he knew it was only a matter of time until gangrene set in. Even if he lived, it seemed unlikely that this youngster, who had stowed away a year and a half before, would ever walk again. Once during the night, Shackleton called to him in an attempt to raise his spirits. Black he shouted in the darkness. Here, sir, Blackborough replied. We shall be on Elephant Island tomorrow, Shackleton yelled. No one has ever landed there before, and you will be the first ashore. Blackborough did not answer. So Shackleton's thinking about him. This is the man who, like you said, screaming in his face a long time earlier, a year and a half before, and now he's thinking about him with compassion
1: so leadership is the right thing at the right time. And when he stowed away, he, uh screaming at him in rage might have been the right thing then.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Shackleton was so responsible for all these people and now you've added this new burden onto him. Um, but once it was over, it was over. And now here we are. Uh, now he loves him and he's thinking compassionately about him. He knows that this, you know, the youngster of the group is not going to have his feet again and Shackleton feels responsible for that. And he's just thinking of some some way to honor him, some way to bless him, some way to bring a spark of hope, a spark of light to him. So finally they get close enough to the shore, but they can find no place to land. It's all just sheer cliffs. And so they're making their way around Elephant Island. The other boat, you know, is still connected to them. The carrot and the wills are connected together. I mean I'm just you're just I'm still skipping so much of waves and then more wind and then almost being capsized and then all the all the problems all the struggles and the docker also meanwhile is having a hard time finding land but neither group knows if the other group made it so Shackleton is thinking oh no they've been lost at sea and the docker is thinking oh no they've been lost at sea <clears throat> and they're continuing to look for one another they're continuing to look for a place to land. And then finally uh, they see an opening that they start to head towards, and finally both boats see each other from a distance, and they're they're rejoicing. They give a they give a call, and now they they head for this little beach that they've found. A shallow reef lay across the opening and heavy rollers foamed over it. Shackleton waited for his moment, then gave the order to pull and the wheels rolled safely over the reef with the next wave her bow ground against the shore shackleton remembering his promise urged blackborough to jump ashore but the lad failed to move he could not comprehend what shackleton was saying impatiently shackleton took a hold of him and lifted him over the side blackborough dropped to his hands and knees then rolled over and sat down with the surf surging around him. Get up, Shackleton ordered. Blackborough looked up. I can't, sir, he replied. Shackleton suddenly remembered Blackborough's feet. In the excitement of the landing, he had forgotten, and he felt ashamed. Well, that sucks. (laughs) Shackleton just, finally, I'm getting these men... On solid land. And here, Blackboro, come on, just like I told you. And then, whoops, I forgot that you can't walk.
1: Ah, the guilt. Man,
0: it's a painful moment. As all three boats are being pulled to safely, Rickinson suddenly turned pale, and a minute later collapsed of a heart attack. Green Street's frostbitten feet would hardly support him, and he hobbled ashore and lay down alongside Blackboro. Hudson pulled himself through the surf and sank down on the beach. Stevenson, a vacant expression on his face, was helped ashore out of reach of the water. They were on land. It was the merest handhold, a 100 feet wide and 50 feet deep, a meager grip on a savage coast exposed to the full fury of the sub-Antarctic ocean. But no matter, they were on land for the first time in 497 days. They were on land, solid, unsinkable, immovable, blessed land. So there are some critters there, uh, thankfully, to eat. And uh, the guys are gathered around. Shackleton stood in the center of the group. He had removed his helmet and his long, uncut hair hung down over his forehead. His shoulders were bent with care and his voice was so hoarse from shouting that he was unable to speak above a whisper. Yet he felt a profound sense of satisfaction and accomplishment to be standing at last on land, surrounded by his men. Now what a... Yeah, profound and deeply satisfying. That is exactly what I would call uh, the, the little wins that you have when you're leading anybody. You know, when something has been hard-fought, even if it's not something, it's not finished, they're not done. But God has blessed them, God has protected them, and they've made it this far. I think about, as husbands and fathers, the winds that you experience along the way, you're not done. we got a long journey ahead of us. We want to endure. Jesus tells us to be faithful, to endure to the end. But all along the way, faithfulness is blessed, faithfulness is rewarded, and there are moments of pride and joy. It seems like Shackleton's enjoying one of those himself. So they 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 kill a few seals. They eat their fill. They got to eat until they were chock full. They ate all they could. Of course, they set up a little bit of a camp, and then it was time to sleep. James wrote, "We turned in and slept as if we had never slept before. Absolute dead, dreamless sleep, oblivious." of wet sleeping bags, lulled by the croaking of the penguins. It was the same for all of them. How delicious, wrote Hurley, to wake in one's sleep and listen to the chanting of the penguins mingling with the music of the sea, to fall asleep and awaken again and feel this is real. We have reached the land. And now the bad news comes. Shackleton recognizes and realizes that the water... The water lines around them reveal that the water gets above the entire beach at certain times. So they have to move.
1: Oh, so the Antarctic's like, oh, you were having fun, you felt security, guess what?
0: And sure enough, here begins another nightmare. Um, they have to launch, they have to go up, they have to find a new section of beach, and all the while they have to navigate and they have to stay close enough to the rocks to avoid these winds that are barreling down from above. And it's this little narrow passageway where it's, we're not going to smash into the rocks from the sea bashing us against them, but we're also not going to be driven out to sea by these huge, huge winds. So we skip a lot. It's even just a crazy experience for them just to try and make it To this next beach, the wind and the waves continue to be merciless. And now here they go. The moment her bow touched, Green Street swung his numbed feet over the side and hobbled ashore through the surf. So this guy, he had been rowing and his hands were totally exposed. He had lost his mittens in a wave or something. And his hands, are. he's just concerned they're going to be gone at this point. He spied the vapor rising from the freshly killed seals, because one of the other boats had made it there first. And he stumbled toward where they lay and thrust his frozen hands into their blood-warm bowels. Thank you, little seals, for your sacrifice. So unfortunately, uh, Elephant Island is not awesome. It is not a warm and welcoming place. It is not the Bahamas. It's very, very difficult on this little section of beach. Again, same kind of situation. A small little area butted up right up against a huge glacier. And it is challenging. But immediately they start making a plan. And the plan is Shackleton is taking a group of guys in the Caird. And they have to cross. We'll get to that in a minute. But it was April 20th, a day notable for only one reason. Shackleton finally made official what everyone expected for a long time. He would take a party of five men and set sail in the carriage for South Georgia to bring relief. They would leave as soon as the carriage could be made ready and provisioned for the trip. It was no surprise to anyone. In fact, a formal announcement was unnecessary. The subject had been discussed openly even long before the party had left Patience Camp. They knew that whatever island they might ultimately reach, a boat journey of some sort would be necessary to bring rescue to the party as a whole even the destination, illogical as it might look on a map, had, had been settled to everyone's satisfaction. There were three possible objectives. The nearest of those was Cape Horn, the island of Tierra del Fuego, land of fire, which lay about 500 miles to the northwest. The next was the settlement of Port Stanley, and the Falcon Islands, some 550 miles, very nearly due north. Finally, there was South Georgia, slightly more than 800 miles to the northeast. Though the distance to South Georgia was more than half again as far as the journey to Cape Horn, weather conditions made South Georgia the most sensible choice. So there's a current, there's a huge current and there's a constant and a big wind. And going to either of the other two locations would have just been pointless. Like They could have never made it. So they have to take the one that's at least going to give them a chance with the wind and current. There's a picture in this book of the cared of the little 20-some foot boat. And if you were to look at it, I mean, we live here in Virginia on the Chesapeake Bay, and I wouldn't want to be out in the bay in rough water in this thing. I mean, I've been in the bay in rough water in a 22-foot boat, and it is, it is, uh, it is sketchy. Real sketchy. And that's knowing that, you know, Worst case scenario, I can still shoot up a flare and Coast Guard's still going to find me and I might have to spend the night in some cold water. But um, these guys, this little boat that they launch in, oh, baby. Unreal. Unreal.
1: Go watch Ed Bassmaster after you listen to this podcast.
0: Unreal. So all this had been discussed again and again. And through the carriage, and though the carriage's chances of actually reaching South Georgia were remote, a great many men genuinely wanted to be taken along. The prospect of staying behind of waiting and not knowing of possibly wintering on this hateful island was far from attractive. so that's pretty interesting. It's like I'd rather go and die and and risk it instead of sitting here and just waiting. you know because if the guys in the carriage are lost at sea, then what's that mean for us? Like we're not going to know anything you just have to keep waiting and waiting and waiting
1: you have no control over what what's what where you're gonna end up or what's gonna yeah happen.
0: again like the it's it's more acceptable to know that i i'll just go do it and if it goes bad all right at least i'll know and there's some comfort in that if you could call it that so um they start getting the ship ready they start getting the cared not the ship the the little boat they start getting the little boat ready And they put rocks in the bottom for ballast to be able to shift it around and help it, you know, to to be able to keep keel in bad weather. Um, They put the best of the stores and the supplies into it so that the guys have the best chance of making it. They add framework. They add some decking. You know, all this sounds real elaborate, but again, if you could see the finished product, you're going, no way. 800 miles of the most difficult sea in the world, that does not seem pleasant. So the island is miserable. The wind seemed to reach underneath them and and snitch away small articles. The island is just constantly beating them with horrible, horrible wind as they're trying to do this. You set something on a rock, you look back, the thing is now gone forever. It's uh, a crazy blizzard they're experiencing in the moment. The next day, the blizzard rose to new heights. Several men were cut on the face by bits of flying ice, and rock. All work, except the simplest cooking, was out of the question, and the men stayed in their sleeping bags all day. Wilde predicted that if conditions didn't improve shortly, some of the weaker men might not survive, and Shackleton met secretly with Macklin to ask how long he thought the men who were remaining behind could hold out under such conditions. Macklin thought about a month. So that tells Shackleton what Macklin's thinking. What do you think can happen? I think we got a month, boss. From the moment you roll out of here, you got to get back to us quick. So they're making plans. They're getting ready to leave. The boat is all finished, as good as they can get it. They get the the best clothing, which is laughable, and the best gear. Shackleton spent almost the whole night talking with Wilde. About a hundred different subjects ranging from what should be done in the event of a rescue party failed to arrive within a reasonable length of time to the, to the distribution of tobacco when there was nothing more to discuss, Shackleton wrote a letter in his log, which he left with Wild, and he tells him, "Here's what I want you to do here's what i want you here's how I want you to spread the word if you make it so the plan is basically if we don't come back within a reasonable amount of time, which I guess is left to them to decide, then uh you're going to have to take a boat." To another island and figure something out
1: I think he wanted him to take the their boat to the island with the stores on it.
0: I think that was going to be the plan like if we can't make it to South Georgia with the best boat and the best of everything, then you're gonna have to take a shorter boat trip to try for one of these other ones and then of course finally the last group of guys would I don't even know if it would even be worth it it would just be survival on the island as long as you can because the wills is pointless to, it's not seaworthy at this point anymore. So they're keeping a watch. They're waiting for the for the final moment. They're looking for the best weather to be able to launch the carrot. And then finally, they decide it's time. A farewell breakfast was prepared for Shackleton, and Shackleton permitted two extra biscuits and a quarter pound of jam per man. For the most part, the men stood around joking. McCarthy was admonished by the other forecastle hands not to get his feet wet during the voyage, which is obviously a joke.
1: So McCarthy had something wrong with his feet? No, or... no,
0: they're just, it's just the seamen talking to each other, and they're, they're just goofing off. They're like, all right, man, they're it's nervous chatter. You know, they know good and well that none of them may ever see one another again. They all know good and well the stakes, but at the same time they're remaining hopeful, they're remaining positive. So they're saying, hey, all right, man, have a good boat trip. They're acting like he's going on a cruise. Said, Don't get your feet wet, knowing exactly he's got to face 800 miles of the worst sea on planet earth so they said don't get your feet wet uh Worsley was cautioned against overeating when he reached civilization and Crean was forced to promise that he would leave some girls for the rest of the party when they were rescued but the tension in the air was unmistakable and both groups knew they might never see one another again seems appropriate you know let's goof off and uh, we, we already know the weight. Nobody has to tell anybody the stakes of everything at this point. So here they are. They're setting off. The moment she was afloat, the weight of the five men sitting on the decking made her top heavy, and she rolled heavily to port. Vincent and McNeish were thrown into the sea. Wow. This
1: is not a good start. We
0: are not doing well. Both men made their way ashore, cursing furiously. Vincent traded with Hal for a semi-dry pair of underwear and trousers, but McNeish refused to exchange clothes with anybody and climbed back on board the boat. So they finally got everything dried out and perfect to to at least give themselves the best foot forward. And then these guys fall in the water as they're like leaving the beach. And all they do is get off the shore a little bit, and then they send a boat out for multiple trips because the carrot is so heavy and so loaded down with about, and they start bringing out rock, and they start bringing out stores to load her down uh, so that she hadn't gotten stuck and stuck before.
1: So Shackleton's probably thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a long trip. Yeah,
0: for real. So they finally, Shackleton's ready to go. He had spoken a while for the last time, and the two had shaken hands. The provisions were placed on board the wheels. Shackleton and Vincent climbed aboard, and she was pulled away from the beach. Good luck, boss, the shore party called after him. Shackleton swung around and waved briefly so they're bringing the they're bringing the other boats out or they're bringing one of the other boats out to to bring them supplies again there were several nervous jokes then the wheels let go and headed back for the beach it was just 12:30 the three little sails on the carriage were up when the men ashore saw mccarthy in the bow signaling to cast off the bow line Wild let go of it, and McCarthy hauled it in. The party on shore gave three cheers, and across the surging breakers, they heard three small cheers in reply. And here we go. So now the book focuses on the guys on the island, before it talks about the guys on their journey. The trial by patience had begun. So they take the two boats that they have, and they make a little shelter out of them. They had tried to cut a cave into the glacier, but as soon as they did, and once it was big enough to get a few guys in, they realized that their body heat just melted some of the ice enough to make water drip down the side, so that was miserable. Everything's miserable. You can imagine. Everything's awful. Everything's miserable. The wind is terrible, and uh, they've built a little hut out of rocks that they had to beat out of the ice, and they stacked their boats on top of them, and this is their little camp that they have to... Exist in.
1: They called the, the two boats they stacked on top of each other the Snuggery, since it was so horrible.
0: Yeah, the Snuggery was the, the name they gave to it.
1: And didn't, I think it was Ord Lease who kept snoring, and some other men kept snoring, and it was a, becoming a problem, so they put ropes on each of the men's arms who snored, which ran to Wilde's bunk. And Wilde would yank on the line of the man who was snoring until he stopped.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he said that we wish we had put it around Ordley's neck to put the the noose on him, because he was the worst, and apparently he didn't wake up. So it's miserable, it's windy, it's cold, it's sleety. At last, on May 2nd, eight days after the carrot had sailed, and more than two weeks after their arrival, the sun came out, the men hurriedly carried their sleeping bags outside to spread them to dry. It was clear again on the 3rd and on the 4th, and after three days of sunshine, their sleeping bags we're not completely dry, though the improvement was a notable one. So they're trying to get the little bit of comforts that they can find. They're concerned because they see uh, ice forming around the island. Even before they could expect to have anybody return to them, they were already starting to worry about man, we're coming into the winter. It's May. So, you know, they're approaching the Arctic. The Arctic summer, I'm sorry, the Arctic winter. So for us, it'd be like the fall going into the winter. For them, it's, or for us, it'd be the the spring is going into the summer. But there, they're experiencing what is their fall going to go into the winter, and their fall is already miserable and awful. Macklin and McElroy, the the two doctors, were kept busy with patients. Kerr developed a bad tooth, and Macklin had to pull it for him. And a grimy quack of a dentist, I must have looked, wrote Macklin. Not much refinement here. Come outside and open your mouth. No cocaine and no anesthesia. Wordy's hand had become infected, and Holness was troubled with a sty. Rickinson was slowly recovering from the heart attack he suffered the day they landed, but the saltwater boils on his wrists stubbornly refused to heal. Green Street's feet, which had been frostbitten in the boats, did not improve, and he was confined to his sleeping bag. Hudson seemed in a serious way, His hands showed definite signs of healing, but the pain in his left buttock, which had begun in the boats, developed into a very large abscess, which pained him constantly. Mentally, too, the scars of the boat journey apparently were still with him. Much of the time, he lay in his sleeping bag for hours without speaking, and he seemed disinterested and detached from what was going on around him. The most serious invalid was Blackborough. His right foot appeared to be recovering, and there was hope that it might even be saved. But in the toes of his left foot, gangrene had already set in. The McElroy, who was attending him, was chiefly concerned with with preventing the afflicted parts from developing what is called wet gangrene, in which the dead flesh remains soft and is likely to spread infection to the other parts of the body. In dry gangrene, the parts turn black and become brittle. In time... The body builds up a wall separating the living tissue from the dead and the threat of infection is greatly reduced. McElroy was intent on seeing that Blackborough's foot remained dry and that the separation would be complete before any operation was undertaken. So as you can tell, a lot of this at this point, we're not extracting tons of family leadership lessons here. Like We're just in the epic story of these guys' survival for a lot of this. So such will be this book. I think many of other podcasts won't even be as heavily story-based at all. Um, there'll be more like, um, instructional or there'll be more like extreme ownership where we had a couple of stories, but endurance, the whole thing is the story and we're extracting from that. So some of their pleasures, Marston had a penny cookbook and it was in constant demand. Each night he would loan it out to, to one group of men or another, and they would pour over it, planning the imaginary meals they would have when they got home. Orlees wrote one night, We want to be fed with a large wooden spoon and, like the Korean babies, be patted on the stomach with the back of the spoon so as to get a little more in than would have otherwise been the case. In short, we want to be overfed, grossly overfed, yes, very grossly overfed on nothing but porridge, sugar, black currant, and apple pudding and cream, cake, eggs, milk, jam, honey, and bread and butter till we burst. We'll shoot the man that offers us meat." We don't want to see or hear of any more meat as long as we live. Of course, that's all they're eating a lot of times is just the the animals around them. On May 17th, McElroy conducted a poll in the hut, asking each man what he would have if he were permitted any one dish of his choice. The results revealed that Ord Lees was right. The cravings for sweets were almost unanimous, and the sweeter the better. And then it gives a sampling of what everybody wants. It's cream dumpling with cream... Syrup, pudding, marmalade, dumpling, cream, apple pudding, cream, porridge, sugar, and cream. Almost everybody's thing is blah, 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 and cream, such and such, and cream, dough, and syrup, scrambled eggs on toast, a couple changed it up, pork, beans, and beans. Uh, Blackborough simply wanted some plain bread and butter. Uh, Green found himself the subject of much interest because he had once been employed as a pastry cook. So they never seem to tire of asking him about it. So they're constantly just fantasizing. A heated debate with Green over whether breadcrumbs should form the base for all puddings. So they're keeping themselves occupied with their fantasies of what they will eat. They tried to keep their spirits up, but each day, the ever-shortening hours of daylight told of the approach of winter. So... Indeed, the realization was spreading that, logically at least, a rescue before winter was becoming increasingly improbable, if not impossible. On May 25th, one month and one day after the carrot had sailed, so a month and a day now, Hurley wrote, Whether whether drifting snow and wind from the east, our wintry environment embodies the most inhospitable and desolate prospect imaginable. All are resigned now and fully anticipate wintering so wild who is left in charge here uh, has some wise leadership in action arguments rambled on the whole day through they served to let off a great deal of steam which might otherwise have built up in addition the party had reduced been reduced to almost a classless society in which most of them felt free to speak their minds and did a man who stepped on another man's head trying to find his way out at night was treated to the same abuse as any other regardless of what his station might have been so rather than trying to keep a, a super tight rein on, on how things are going to operate, a wild, you've got to use your leadership capital wisely, and that has to be appropriate for the situation. So like we said, good leadership just has to adapt to the moment. It's not following a rule at all times. If we're going to be orderly, but it's understanding we need to fit the occasion. And Yes, we need order, and, and we need uh, certain things in place, but just little, little things you notice, maybe Wilde had learned a thing or two from Shackleton. After a time after a time, however, Wilde succumbed to the mounting pressure, and a two gallon gasoline can was made into a urinal for use at night. So because they going out to pee was so awful and terrible. So they said, Well let's at least like pee in this thing, so we can stay in our little hut. The rule was that the man who raised its level to within two inches of the top had to carry the can outside and empty it. If a man felt the need and the weather outside was bad, he would lie awake waiting for somebody else to go so that he might be able to judge from the sound of the level of the can's contents. So I need to pee super bad, but I don't want to be the one to have to dump it. So let me wait and listen to somebody else pee. And they were beginning to learn the sound of it so they could judge whether or not it was almost full. It's like, oh, there's plenty of room. I'll go pee now so I don't have to be the one to dump it. If it sounded ominously close to the top, he would try to hold out until morning, but it was not always possible to do so, and he might be forced to get up. More than once, a man would fill the can as silently as possible, then steal back into his sleeping bag. The next man would get up to find, to his fury, that the can was full and had to be emptied before it could be used. The unfortunate victim, (laughs) however, could expect very little sympathy. Most of the men looked on this as a kind of practical joke, and anyone who really lost his temper about it was so roundly ridiculed by the others that he soon gave it up. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe y'all... Shut up! Just take it out! Shut up!
1: I would have just checked before bed every night.
0: Yeah, I guess. There's a lot of guys, though. We had, what, 27 minus 6, so we got 21 men. So lots of dudes are peeing. Lots of dudes are just letting it rip constantly. All right, so now it's time for Blackborough's foot to go. What few surgical supplies they had were made ready. And as soon as breakfast was over, the hoosh pot was filled with ice and melted into water and brought to a boil to sterilize the instruments. A number of packing cases were placed side by side to the stove and covered with blankets to serve as an operating table. Everything was made ready. The men headed outside to wait until the operation was over. The two other invalids, Hudson and Greenstreet, remained in the hut. Hudson lay at the far end, and Greenstreet's berth across the seats of the docker was directly over the operating scene. Wilde and Hal both stayed inside to assist, and Hurley remained to stoke the fire. As soon as the men had left, he began to pile penguin skins onto the blaze. As the temperature started to rise, Blackboro was lifted onto the operating table. Every available blubber lamp was lighted, and the dingy interior of the hut grew fairly light in the little circle around the stove. When it was warm enough, McElroy Roy, and Macklin stripped into their undershirts, the cleanest, garment, the cleanest garments they had. So they had chloroform. So they give him chloroform after a few minutes. He passes out. They put his foot up in position, and they begin... They take a pair of forceps and they begin to remove. They remove them from the boiling water. To Green Street, they look like a pair of tin snips. Carefully, McElroy reached up, reached well up, reach well up under the flap of skin to where the toes join the foot. Then, one at a time, he cut them off. Each dropped with a metallic clatter into the empty tin can below. Next, McElroy meticulous, meticulously scraped away the dead, blackened flesh. And when the wound was clean, he carefully stitched it up. Finally, it was done. McElroy's foot had been neatly trimmed off just at the ball joint.
1: No, Black not McElroy's.
0: Oh, sorry. Black foot had been trimmed off at the ball joint. Altogether, it had taken 55 minutes. Before long, Black began to moan. And in a little while, he opened his eyes. He was groggy for a time, but then he smiled up at the two doctors. I'd like a cigarette, he said. So they rolled him one. All right. Just another day on Elephant Island.
1: You know, I lost my foot uh, hoping to have a rescue in a few months, you know.
0: All is well. Uh, inside, the hut is getting more and more and more filthy. And, of course, they're just more and more hopeful. Um, they're They're more and more desperate, I should say, that they're actually going to make it out of the situation. In varying degrees, it was the same with all of them and in their interminable discussions of when and how they might be rescued. There had been one possibility that was rarely mentioned, the loss of the cared. It was considered somehow bad luck to even discuss it, and any man who brought it up was looked upon as speaking out of turn and in bad taste, almost as if he had sullied something that was sacred. And though they were still hesitant to suggest openly that the cared could be lost, they can no longer avoid admitting, at least tacitly, that something quite possibly might have happened. Shackleton had been gone for ninety-nine days, and there was a kind of creeping awareness that they might be watching for something that would never come. If so, Macklin finally conceded in his diary on July 31st. It means a journey in the Stankham Wills to Deception One. This will be an arduous journey, but I hope I will be picked one of the party if it comes to this. So why would it be the Wills? I think the I think the rudder got ripped off the other one when they were coming in. Yeah, that's what happened. Rough, rough stuff. So it shows a bunch of their journal entries, and it just reveals the private discouragement where they're constantly looking. They're trying to be positive with each other, but in their journals, you can just hear the, you can read and, and see and realize. And finally, on August 19th, Ordley's wrote, there is no good in deceiving ourselves any longer. They're losing hope, and they're in the dead of the winter. So now we join the story back with the cared. Monday, April 24th. Mcnisha's log. We took goodbye with our companions and set sail on our 870 miles to South Georgia. At 12.30 and at 2 p.m., we came... 2 p.m., we came to a stream of ice which we managed to get through in about an hour. Then we were in the open, wet sea. So now we join up again with the men of the carriage, Shackleton and the five others. And now, McNisha's log uh, on Monday, April 24th. We took goodbye with our companions and set sail on our 870 miles to South Georgia for assistance. And at 2 p.m., we came to a stream of ice, which we managed to get through in about an hour. Then we were in the open sea, wet through, but happy through it all. Maybe at first. But it definitely doesn't stay that way. Worsley held her on a northerly course, and Shackleton stood beside him alternately peering ahead at the approaching ice and turning again to look at the men that he was leaving behind. It was only a short time it seemed until they were no longer discernible, so that was them just pulling away as Shackleton continued to look back way of the world on that man's shoulders. you know, we've got to make it, but we've got we've got to make it. you just have to. You just absolutely have to.
1: Failure isn't an option. You don't
0: have the option. You've got to make it. You've got to find a way. So they drift into ice. They're dwarfed on all sides. They end up finding a way through. And open sea again. Elephant Island is fading on the horizon. When everything else was squared away, Shackleton turned and looked astern. It was just possible to make out Elephant Island as a hulking, shadowing mass. For several minutes he stared without speaking. A forbidding looking place, certainly, but that only made it seem more pitiful. It was the refuge of twenty two, so twenty two men, who at that very moment were camped on a precarious, storm washed spit of beach, as helpless and isolated from the world as if they were on another planet. Their plight was known only to the six men in this ridiculously little boat whose responsibility now was to prove that all the laws of chance were wrong and return with help. It was a staggering trust. It is a staggering trust when anybody trusts you, when anybody leans into your leadership, when your wife trusts you to protect, provide, preside, when your children look up to you, and expect you to to be the daddy, to do the right things, to be the greatest man that they've ever known. What a high calling, what a heavy burden, but thankfully one that we were built for. We were made to come through. Ernest Shackleton and these men, they were made to come through. Men were made to come through, and certainly as husbands and fathers, we were made to come through We see Shackleton uh, feeling the pressure and actually discussing it and, and revealing a little bit of it now. From time to time, Shackleton rolled cigarettes for both of them. So this is he and uh, Worsley sitting up on the stern, steering through the night, peering, looking for ice. They spoke of many things. It was obvious that the burden of responsibility for, uh, on Shackleton had, that he had borne for 16 months had nibbled away somewhat at his enormous self-confidence. He wanted to talk and be assured that he had acted wisely. He confided to Worsley that the decision to separate the party had been a desperately difficult one, and he abhorred having to make it, but somebody had to go for help, and this was not the sort of responsibility which could be delegated to another person as the journey itself he seemed strange as for the journey itself, he seemed strangely doubtful, and he asked Worsley's opinion of their chances. Worsley replied that he was sure that they would make it, but it was evident that Shackleton was far from convinced. The truth was that he felt rather out of his element. He had proven himself on land. He had demonstrated there beyond all doubt in his ability to pit his matchless tenacity against the elements and win. But the sea is a different sort of enemy. Unlike the land, where courage and the simple will to endure can often see a man through, the struggle against the sea is an act of physical combat, and there is no escape. It is a battle against a tireless enemy in which man never actually wins. The most that he can hope for is to not be defeated. It gave Shackleton a feeling of uneasiness, for he now faced an adversary so formidable that his own strength was nothing in comparison, and he did not enjoy being in position Where boldness and determination count for almost nothing, and in which victory is measured only in survival. But more than anything, he was dreadfully tired, and he wanted simply for the journey to be over and as quickly as possible. If only they could make Cape Horn, he said to Worsley, they would cut one third off the distance they had to go. He knew it was impossible, but he asked Worsley whether he thought the southeast wind just might hold long enough for them to do so. Worsley looked at him sympathetically and shook his head. Not a chance, he replied. So Shackleton, looking for some comfort, looking to to confide in somebody a little bit. You You need reassurance as a leader. You need somebody to talk to. A lot of times as a husband, this is going to be your wife. This is going to be your first officer. Um, There's a time and a place for everything. So, you know, there have been times in my marriage where um, I have been a crying heap in my wife's lap. I think it's happened twice. Um, If you're a crying heap in your wife's lap every day, obviously... That's not going to work. That's not okay. So, is vulnerability important? Are men allowed to have emotions and feel their emotions and share their emotions? Sure. But again, there's a time and a place for things. And Shackleton is just, he's just feeling it out. He's just letting off a little bit of steam, letting off a little bit of his insecurities. He's not sabotaging the mission in any way because, again, that is still his responsibility. So, yeah, do you need to take care of you? Absolutely. You gotta take care of you. You on the inside, you on the outside. Are there limits? Absolutely there are limits. Because it comes down to the responsibility. And the leader, the good leader, the family captain, is always going to do what's best for the family. And at times that's a great thing for your wife to see. It's a great thing for your children to see a vulnerability in you. So we're not a stone. We're not a, a block of ice. This emotion this emotionless rock. Uh, that doesn't help the family. That is not what's best for the family. But it's just interesting. Again, the right thing at the right time. That's what wisdom does. That's what wisdom looks like. I was talking with a client about this recently, um, facing a situation in his family. And he's just like, did I go too far? And and just able to coach him through the details of, of what he was facing and and how there is there is a balance, there is a tension, and there is a, a wisdom to walk through it. And actually, he had done a great job. Of navigating that. So time and a place. So their boat is really awful and miserable. Um, they've built a deck of some sort. So you can go below deck, but you can't stand up. You can't even sit. Like if you if they sit on their butts, they're sitting on all these rocks that they put in for ballast. And they can't even sit tall. So to, to sit, they have to crunch their head down. So they can't even eat down there because they can't swallow. And as I was reading, I was like, you can't swallow when your head's crunched down? Try and do it. Everybody's doing it right now.
1: I, I can swallow. I, I can, you I, can? I can, yeah. Kind could, of. Could
0: you with food?
1: I, it would have to be chewed up pretty well. All
0: right, well, we need to try it in a minute with food. It's not pleasant. I think we can understand that. It's difficult.
1: Yeah, and I think they were like trying to lay down, but it hurt so much to lay down.
0: The rocks are miserable. So water's breaking over the boat. Ice is freezing on the boat. Water's getting down... Sleeping bags are soaked, they're soaked, the The seas are huge. This is the worst conditions that they've possibly had. They're making a rate of about one mile every half hour, so two miles per hour. Not doing great. This then was the Drake Passage, the most dreaded bit of ocean on the globe, and rightly so. Here, nature has been given a proving ground on which to demonstrate what she can do if left alone. The results are impressive. It begins with the wind. There is an immense area of persistent low pressure in the vicinity of the Antarctic Circle, approximately 67 degrees south latitude. It acts as a giant sump into which high pressure from farther north continually drains, accompanied by almost ceaseless gale-force westerly winds. In the prosaic often studiously understood language of the us navy sailing direction of the us navy's book sailing directions for antarctica these winds are described categorically like so they're often of hurricane intensity and with gust velocities sometimes attaining 150 to 200 miles per hour winds of such violence are not known elsewhere save, perhaps, within a tropical cyclone. So, obviously, the worst of the worst of the worst hurricanes in the world have what this has. Sometimes, just a day in a life. Also, in these latitudes, as nowhere else on Earth, the sea girdles the globe, uninterrupted by any mass of land. Here, since the beginning of time, the winds have mercilessly driven the seas clockwise, around the earth, to return again to their birthplace, where they reinforce themselves or one another. The waves thus produced have become legendary among seafaring men. They are called cape horn rollers or graybeards. Their length has been estimated from crest to crest to exceed a mile, and the terrified reports of some mariners have placed their height at 200 feet. Though scientists doubt that they very often exceed 80 or 90 feet. Oh, just 80 or 90 feet tall. How fast they travel is largely a matter of speculation, but many sailormen have claimed that their speed occasionally reaches 55 miles an hour. 30 knots is probably a more accurate figure, so close to 40 miles an hour then. Incredible stuff.
1: So another day in the life of Ernest Shackleton's Arctic... Exploration.
0: Yeah, so you guys have to Google uh, Google, and look up a picture of the Caird. It's spelled C-A-I-R-D, and look it up, and then know what six men were in as they went through the body of water that you just had described to you. So it's incredible. Once every 90 seconds or less, the Caird's sail would go slack as one of these gigantic waves loomed astern, possibly fifty feet above her, and threatening, surely to bury her under a hundred million tons of water. But then, by some phenomenon of buoyancy, she was lifted higher and higher and higher, up up the face of the onrushing swell, until she found herself, rather unexpectedly, caught in the turmoil of foam at the summit, and then hurtling forward, over and over again, a thousand times each day, this drama was reenacted. So, It sounds incredible, like a one-time thing, but it just keeps happening. This huge drama, you just, it just, here we go again. Huge, huge, huge swells. So big that the wind can't get to the boat because it's 50 feet above them. The wind's blowing up there, and now we're down here in the valley, looking at a huge wave right there. Your whole world is just water, bow and stern. And then you rise to the top again. So it talks about how they weren't even thinking about South Georgia at this point. Existence was so cold and so bad. For these guys, it's the worst it's been now. The only thing is the 60 seconds in front of you. That was as far as they went. Instead, life was reckoned into a period of a few hours or possibly only a few minutes. An endless succession of trials leading to deliverance from the particular hell of the moment. When a man was awakened to go on watch, the focal point of his existence became that time. Four hours away, when he could slither back into the cold, wet, rockiness of the sleeping bag he was now leaving. And within each watch, there were a number of subdivisions the time at the helm, eighty aeonic minutes, during which a man was forced to expose himself to the full wickedness of the spray and the cold, the ordeal of pumping, and the awful task of shifting ballast, and the lesser trials, which lasted perhaps two minutes, like the interval after each numbing spray struck a man, struck his clothes until the clothes warmed enough warmed enough until he could move once more. So you're soaked to the bone, but after a minute or two if you don't get soaked again, at least the water that's on you slightly warms until the next wave washes through the boat and you get wet again. On April twenty seventh, three days out from Elephant Island, their luck turned bad. <laughs> Uh, You think? Oh no, it's been so good up until this moment. But now it begins to rain. Uh, This rainy mist. They're 150 miles north of Elephant Island. The wind gets brutal and the wind is coming straight on. And they can't go straight on into the winds. They have to tack from port to starboard back and forth and take a wearisome pounding in the process so it's also discouraging because at this point they're not making progress. All they're doing is holding their own. They're not actually moving forward anymore. Shackleton noticed with apprehension the familiar pains of sciatica that he had suffered back at ocean camp when they were, coming, when they were back at ocean camp. So Shackleton's got some issues going on. Um, he has the guys take off their foot gear. Their feet are in really bad shape. Shackleton administers some witch hazel to one of the guy's feet, trying to help him. The dawn of the fifth day, April 29th, rose on a lumpy sea under a dull sky. Troubled clouds scuttled past, almost touching the surface of the water. The wind was nearly dead astern, and the carrot labored forward like a protesting old woman, being hurried along faster than she cared to go. So they're checking, they're finally getting a sight, and voila, They had covered 238 miles since leaving Elephant Island six days before. They were almost one-third of the way. So six days, one-third. So that tells them that they've got a pace basically of like 18 days, which is way longer than they're prepared for. The the, The temperature that day had dropped close to zero. So again, just to keep you remembering in case you forgot, it's real cold down there. Sure enough, they get a headwind. They have to come about. They have to relax with it. They have to roll with it. They put the sea anchor out so as to to uh, not be taken so far and so fast with the wind. And they're fighting ice like crazy now. It's so cold everything's icing over. They have to beat the ice off with oars and Now they're at seven days, and the rocks underneath the deck are just making them miserable. They're in tons of pain. The reindeer hair from their sleeping bags is everywhere. It's in their food. It's in their water. It's in their mouth. It's on their face. It's all over the boat. And now they've also discovered that the sleeping bags are producing a terrible smell, and all the sleeping bags are slimy inside sleeping bags are rotting. They throw one of them overboard.
1: So the ballast is freezing. The boat's freezing. The ropes are freezing. The sail is freezing. They're freezing. Uh, the reindeer hair is getting everywhere. And what was the last thing?
0: The sleeping bags and, are rotting. And the
1: sleeping bags are slimy and disgusting.
0: So they had a terrible night, and they wake up to see the entire boat encased in ice. Uh, I mean, there was a man on watch, but he, you know, he's not able to keep ice off the boat on night, It was a half a foot thick in some places, and the rope to the sea anchor had grown to the size of a man's thigh. Under the weight of it, she was riding at least four inches deeper. So, basically, somebody has to crawl up on the deck, which is super, super slick, and iced over, and start breaking ice off. So, of course, who do you think went out there to do it? Shackleton. Yes. Rightfully so. If somebody's got to suffer, it should be the leader. But, I don't know if I said this earlier, but if somebody's got to suffer all the time, then we're probably just leading really poorly. And that means we've got to make some changes. Uh, in this case, that's not what's going on. We just have terrible issues facing us. So the the ice issue continues to form up. Um, the next day, they lose the sea anchor. It just totally breaks loose. Uh, they get A huge wave breaks over them because the the, the sea anchor breaks loose. We just keep going bad to worse, in case you haven't figured that out. So now we're to May 3rd. Remember, they left on April 24th. Worsley took out his sextant. They were 403 miles from Elephant Island, just more than halfway to South Georgia. They finally had some dry weather. The sun came out, so they took off whatever clothes they could and started drying them out on the sail, the sleeping bags. And they actually, from this point get uh you know a 24-hour window where things are not as miserable as they had been relatively of course
1: so that's still super miserable
0: exactly worsley recorded in his sleeping bag the reindeer bags recorded in his in his log reindeer bags in such a hopeless sloppy slimy mess smelling badly and weighing so heavily that we threw two of the worst ones overboard. Each weighed about 40 pounds. Later, he wrote, Mackey McCarthy is the most irrepressible optimist I've ever met. When I relieve him at the helm, boat iced over and seas poured down your neck, and he informs me with a happy grin, it's a grand day, sir. I was feeling a bit sour just before. <laughs> so, interesting. McCarthy's just... Positive guy, you you need to have one of those guys around, who's just unflappable. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna change his tune. So another night at midnight, Shackleton, or after a drink of hot milk, Shackleton's watch took over, and Shackleton himself assumed the helm, while Crean and McNeish stayed below to pump. His eyes were just growing accustomed to the dark when he turned and saw a rift of brightness in the sky. He called to the others to tell them the good news that the weather was clearing to the southwest. A moment later he heard a hiss, accompanied by a low muddled roar, and turned to look again. This rift in the clouds actually was the crest of an enormous wave. It was advancing rapidly toward them. He spun around and instinctively pulled his head down. For God's sake, hold on, he shouted. It's got us! For a long instant nothing happened. The carrot simply rose higher and higher, and the dull thunder Of this enormous breaking wave filled the air, and then it hit. And she was caught in a mountain of seething water and catapulted boldly forward and sideways at the same time. She seemed actually to be thrown into the air, and Shackleton was nearly torn from his seat by the deluge of water that swept over him. The lines to the rudder went slack, then suddenly seized up again as the boat viciously swung round like some contemptible plaything. For an instant, nothing existed but water. They couldn't even tell whether she was upright. But then the instant was over, the wave had rolled on, and the cared, those stunned and half dead under a load of water that rose nearly to the seats was miraculously still afloat. And so, of course, everybody, everybody's just bailing, 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 bailing. And finally... The care had lifted to the seas again. And they continue. They move on. May 6th reveals an ugly scene. 58 mile an hour winds. It's rough. For 13 days, they had suffered through the most ceaseless gales. And then finally, a huge rogue sea. They had been the underdog, fit to endure the punishment. Fit only to endure the punishment inflicted upon them. But sufficiently provoked. There is hardly a creature on God's earth that ultimately won't turn and attempt to fight, regardless of the odds. It is in an unspoken sense, in an unspoken sense, that was much the way they felt now. They were possessed by an angry determination to see the journey through, no matter what. They felt they had earned it. For 13 days, they had absorbed everything the Drake Passage could throw at them, and now, by God, they deserved to make it. So they keep taking sights, keep getting closer, keep moving along, and now they discover their their second cask of water that they've just come to is brackish. So it has leaked, and it's only half full, so they only have water for a week at this point, and they have salt water. It's um, salty, so it's going to make them more thirsty the more they drink it. And now surely they've made enough progress that they should be able to see the peaks of South Georgia, 10,000 feet high, but they can't, and the stress and the anxiety that they're feeling and the confusion because they can't get a good sight because the sun has only peaked out barely for a moment and they weren't able to take a great sight. So it's been challenging. At eight o'clock, Shackleton's watch was due to take over, but nobody thought about watches. Instead, all hands crowded into the cockpit, searching ahead and to each side in an atmosphere of competition, hoping, of hoping of anxiety all at once. But there was only sea and sky, same as there had always been. Toward nine o'clock, Shackleton sent cream below to prepare some hoosh. When it was ready, they ate it hurriedly in order to return to their lookout posts. It was a strange time of eagerness and ex- expectation underscored by grave unspoken doubts. It was all so nearly over, an occasion for excitement, even jubilation. And yet, in the back of their minds was a nagging voice, which refused to be silent. They might very well be looking in vain. If the island was there, it should have been sighted hours before. Then, just after 10.30, Vincent spotted a clump of seaweed. A few minutes later, a cormorant was sighted, ahead. Overhead. Hope flared anew. Cormorants rarely ventured farther than 15 miles from land. land. Soon, the foggy mist began to break up, though ever so slowly. Ragged clouds still scuttled along close to the surface of the water. But visibility was better. At noon, the fog was almost gone, but the heaving sea stretched in every direction. Finally, land! It was McCarthy's voice, strong and confident. He was pointing dead ahead, and there it was, a black, frowning cliff with patches of snow clinging to its sides. It was just visible between the clouds, possibly ten miles away. A moment later, the clouds moved like a curtain across the water, shutting off the view, but no matter it was there and they all had seen it by 2:30 the caird was almost was a little more than 3 miles off the coast and it was possible to see patches of green lichens and areas of yellow-brown tussock grass showing through the snow on the steep sides of the headlands growing things the first they had seen in more than 16 months and they would be standing among them in a little over an hour or more Well, that doesn't happen. Weather comes up. Um, The worst weather that they've had in this boat. Um, The wind up to 65 knots. Um, And then it finally gets up to 80 knots. They're getting beat back. They get pushed closer to another island. And it's just not looking good for their ship to even survive. It seems as though surely they're going to die. So there are plenty of times where they thought things are really, really bad. Um, but this is a time where they thought, This is it. We just have to try and hold against this storm. We have to yield, they have to give up miles. Um, they're concerned that the wind is going to blow them into the into the reefs of this other island. Finally, it seems as though they get past this other island. They're just like their their victories go from let's land on South Georgia to Let's not get smashed on the reefs of this other island that we've been pushed back to. And they just continue to experience loss and suffering. But finally, the weather breaks and they get a break and they're finally able to push towards the island. Uh, It was time for one last desperate attempt. Another night, this time a drop without a drop of water and possibly another gale. They simply did not have it in them. Hurriedly, they ran up every sail to its full height and headed for the narrow opening in the reefs. But it meant sailing straight into the wind, and the carrot simply could not do it. Four times they lay off, and four times they tried to tack into the wind. Four times they failed. It was well after four o'clock, and the light was beginning to to go. They ran the carrot a mile to the south, trying to get the wind as much abeam as possible. Then they came about once more onto the starboard tack. This time, she just managed to slip through. Instantly, the sails were dropped and the oars were put out. They rowed for about ten minutes, then Shackleton spotted a small cove in the cliffs to starboard. So they try and make their way into this little cove. About 200 yards beyond was a steep, bouldered beach, Shackleton standing in the bow, holding the frayed remains of the sea anchor line. Finally, the carid rose up on a swell and her keel ground against the rocks. Shackleton jumped ashore and held her from going out. As quickly as they could, the men scrambled after him. It was five o'clock on the 10th of May, 1916, and they were standing at last on the island from which they had sailed 522 days before. They heard a trickling sound. Only a few yards away, a little stream of fresh water was running down from the glacier's high bluff. A moment later, all six men were on their knees drinking.
1: It must be crazy f- for them to be just seeing ice and rock and water for 16 months and then to be on this island where there's finally green things. And
0: and humans. They know that the, yeah. uh, that the sailing camp, the whaling camp is here. So we're close, but they're on the opposite side of the island. They weren't able to navigate the boat around So unfortunately, guess what? They can't camp here. It's too treacherous. They look for a path through the island, but it's nothing but sheer cliffs right where they're at. So they actually have to get back in the boat and navigate around again to go find another area because this area is impassable. So sure enough, that's what they do. They load up in the carrot again, and they go six miles up the coast. Thankfully, um, it was a carefree journey, it says. They made it without incident, so there they had finally a break. Something good happened for them and they land. They've got disagreeable weather and but the plan is the plan. The plan is obvious. Shackleton's going to go with two other guys, and they're going to make a journey may eighteenth was was another day of disagreeable weather, and Shackleton was almost beside himself to begin the journey. They spent a tense day going over their gear once more and watching for it to break in the weather. The decision had been made to travel light, even without sleeping bags. Each of the overland party was to carry his own allotment of three days' sledging rations and biscuits. In addition, they were to take a, a primus stove, filled, which carried enough fuel for six meals, plus a small pot for cooking, and a half-filled box of matches. They had two compasses, two pair of, uh, one pair of binocular, and fifty feet of rope knotted together, along with the carpenter's ads as fuel... Oh, sorry, as used for an ice axe. The only superfluous item Shackleton permitted was Worsley's diary. At dusk, the break came. The sky showed signs of clearing. Shackleton met with McNeish, whom he left in charge of the three men behind. So Shackleton and the guys set off. They go at, at midnight in the moon. In, in, it was like 2 a.m. The sun shining down. And they go off up the mountain.
1: So there's these huge cliffs with ice and rock. And it's treacherous and things are sliding and slippery. And they have a carpenter's axe and 50 feet of rope.
0: Yeah, that's their plan. To make it through uncharted land. Never been charted. Never been passed through before by humans. And uh, not done again for 50 some years with a full team. And they couldn't take the path that Shackleton and his men took. They said... They said there's two ways to go. The way that we went and barely made it, and then there's the way that Shackleton went. And the and the, and the experts the, the expedition people said we have no idea how they did it. Shackleton rope thought it would be best if they roped themselves together for safety. So this is that's that's their big plan. They're just tied together and uh, so if something happens, hey, at least we'll be together. So they start making progress. Three different times, they make miles of progress. Up a cliff, down a cliff, up a hill, down a hill. And then they come to a place where they realize they're stuck. And they have to backtrack the whole distance. And they do it again. Up, down, up, down, go around, up. And this whole thing that we've been pursuing was wrong and we're going to have to go back another way. It's a maze. And they can't find their way through the maze. It's just really that awful and if they get caught with a bad change <clears throat> with a bad change in the weather they're powerless to save themselves the blizzards of south georgia are considered among the worst on earth so they have to go back regain the ground and constantly struggle not not just with that but the discouragement they have to cut their steps into the ice so they actually can have footholds Every now and then they'll take a break to eat a biscuit, to heat up some milk, and they'll take it scalding hot. And now finally, um, they've come to the fourth place where they're stuck and they have to go back, but the temperature is dropping and they're at a really high elevation and the fog is coming up behind them and they're watching it come up the mountain. And Shackleton knows if they get caught in this fog, they're going to die. They all It's very clear. The only way to go is down, but they can't go down. Uh, so they try. They they ice pick their way in and they climb down for like an hour and they make pitiful progress. They look up and it's just ridiculous the amount that they've covered. Shackleton had hacked out a small platform with the little axe and then called the others to come down. There was no need to explain the situation. Speaking rapidly, Shackleton said that they faced a clear-cut choice. If they stayed where they were, they would freeze. In an hour, maybe two, maybe more, they had to get lower, and with all possible haste, so he suggested they slide. Worsley and Cream were stunned, especially for such an insane solution to be coming from Shackleton. But he wasn't joking. He wasn't even smiling. He meant it, and they knew it. But what if they hit a rock? Cream wanted to know. Could they stay where they were? Shackleton replied, his voice rising. The slope, Worsley argued. What if it didn't level off? What if there were another precipice? Shackleton's patience was going... Again, he demanded, could they stay where they were? Obviously, they could not, and Worsley and Crean reluctantly were forced to admit it. Nor was there really any other way of getting down, and so the decision was made. Shackleton said they would slide in a unit holding on to one another. They quickly sat down and untied the rope which had held them together. Each of them coiled up his share to form a mat. Worsley locked his legs around Shackleton's waist and put his arms around Shackleton's neck. Green did the same with Worsley, and they looked like three tobogganers without a toboggan. Altogether, it took a little more than a minute, and Shackleton did not permit any time for reflection. When they were ready, he kicked off. In the next instant, their hearts stopped beating. They seemed to hang poised for a split second. Then suddenly, the wind was shrieking in their ears, and the white blur of snow tore past. Down, down, they screamed, not in terror, necessarily, but simply because they couldn't help it. It was squeezed out of them by the rapidly mounting pressure in their ears and against their chests. Faster and faster, down, 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 down. They shot forward onto the level, on, onto the level and their speed began to sh- slacken. A moment later, they came to an abrupt halt in a snowbank. The three men picked themselves up. They were breathless, and their hearts were beating wildly. But they had found but they found themselves laughing uncontrollably. What had been a terrifying prospect possibly a hundred seconds before had turned into a breathtaking triumph. They looked up against the darkening sky and saw the fog curling over the edge of the ridges, perhaps two thousand feet above them, and they felt that special kind of pride of a person who, in a foolish moment, accepts an impossible dare, then pulls it off to perfection. Having a good time. So now they see some landmarks, they see a lake, and they said, Yes, that's got to be uh, where we want to go. And no, they were wrong. They, were cruelly de- they had cruelly deceived themselves. They had to retrace their steps for the fourth time, going back at one point. But now they were tired to the point of exhaustion. They found a little sheltered spot and sat down, huddled together with their arms around one another for warmth. Almost at once, Worsley and Crean fell asleep, and Shackleton, too, caught himself nodding. Suddenly, he jerked his head upright. All the years of Antarctic experience told him that this was the danger sign, the fatal sleep that trails off into freezing death. He fought to stay awake for five long minutes. Then, he woke the others, telling them that they had slept for half an hour. Smart man. Have you ever, uh, going to bed and you feel like you wake up five minutes later
1: yeah it just feels like where did the night go right these guys
0: they actually slept for five minutes i wonder if they're i wonder if shackleton's deception helped him obviously he's doing what's best for the team he's not trying to say all right let's go you slept for five minutes they're going well we didn't sleep he wants them to know like no man you've got a good you're fresh let's put fresh legs let's put fresh minds into it why because he's doing what's best for him he's trying to keep them alive. Because if they die, what happens? Uh, Everybody dies.
1: Oh, I thought you meant if the other two die.
0: Yeah, if they die, if the three of them die, everybody's going to die. So Shackleton crawls forward. They make it to another um, really high peak. It's so pointed, it's so sharp, that Shackleton can put one leg over one side of the mountain and one leg over the other side. Like like he's laying sitting on the roof of a house. that's nuts. He started down it just and just then a sound reached him. It was faint and uncertain, but it could have been a steam whistle. Shackleton knew it was about six thirty a m The time when the men at the whaling station usually were w- awakened. He hurried down from the ridge to tell Worsley and Crean the exciting news. Breakfast was gulped down. Then Worsley took the chronometer from around his neck, and the three of them crowded around, staring fixedly at its hands. If Shackleton had, had heard the steam whistle, it should blow again to call them into work at seven o'clock. It was six fifty, 6.50, six fifty-five. They hardly even breathed for fear of making a sound. 6.58, 6.59, exactly to the second. The hoot of the whistle carried through the thin morning air. They looked at one another and smiled. Then they shook hands without speaking. A peculiar thing to stir a man, the sound of a factory whistle heard on a mountainside. But for them it was the first sound from the outside world that they had heard since December 1914, seventeen unbelievable months before. In that instant they felt an overwhelming sense of pride and accomplishment. Though they had failed dismally to even come close to the expedition's original objective. They knew now that somehow they had done much, much more than they ever set out to do. So they continue to climb, and they have to climb up, 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 digging in. It doesn't get easy. It gets hard. They can now, they're now up on a high peak. They can look down and see these tiny figures walking around down at the whaling station area. This teeny, teeny, tiny little, you couldn't even call it a village couple of buildings in place and a little bit of bustling. You can see the harbor. There's a ship in there. Let's go down, Shackleton said quietly. About three o'clock, they find a stream. They follow the stream. It, they're following it down, following it down, and of course it leads to a waterfall. And there's no other option. They have to go down the waterfall. The waterfall is about 25 feet up, so they have to lower one other through the waterfall and in the freezing glacier water of the waterfall. And um, that's what they get lowered in. And then they continue to walk into town. Go ahead.
1: I actually don't remember that part, but there are some parts that I just don't remember, but it doesn't surprise me because it's all horrible.
0: And here we go. Matthias Anderson was the station foreman at Strom's. This is the whaling camp. He had never met Shackleton, but along with everyone else at South Georgia, he knew that... The Endurance had sailed from there in 1914 and had undoubtedly been lost with all hands in the Weddell Sea. Just then, however, his thoughts were a long way from Shackleton and the ill-fated Imperial Transatlantic Expedition. He had had put in a long workday beginning at 7 a.m., and it was now after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So this guy is working, and now these two little kids come running, screaming, afraid, and, they, and they're yelling about these men that they see. So this guy looks up, and he sees strangers. It's strange, not the fact that they were coming, but it was strange that they were coming not from the docks, but from the direction of the mountains, the interior of the land, where no one had ever been. As they drew closer, he saw they were heavily bearded, and their faces almost as black, almost black, except for their eyes.
1: This is when the awesome music kicks in.
0: Yeah. And uh, so their faces are black from the seal blubber stove and the soot from you know the cooking stoves that they had leaned over for warmth so many times. Their hair was as long as a woman's and hung down to their shoulders. For some reason, it looked stringy and stiff. Their clothing, clothing was peculiar, too. It was not the sweaters or boots worn by seamen. Instead, the three men appeared to have on parkas, though it was hard to tell because their garments were in such a ragged state. By then... The workmen had stopped what they were doing to stare at the three strangers approaching. The foreman stepped forward to meet them. The man in the in the center spoke in English. Would you please take me to Anton Anderson, he said softly. The foreman shook his head. Anton Anderson was not at Strom's any longer, he explained. He had been replaced by the regular factory manager. They're all sore. The Englishman seemed pleased. Good, he said. I know Sore well. The foreman led the way to Sore's house, about a hundred yards off to the right. Almost all the workmen on the pier had left their jobs to come see the three strangers who had appeared at the dock. Now they lined the route, looking curiously at the foreman and his three companions. Anderson knocked at the manager's door, and after a moment, Sore opened it himself. He was in his shirt sleeves, and he still sported his big handlebar mustache. When he saw the three men, he stepped back, and a look of disbelief came over his face. For a long moment, he stood shocked and silent before he spoke. Who the hell are you, he said at last. The man in the center stepped forward. My name is Shackleton, he replied in a quiet voice. Again, there was silence. Some said that Sore turned away and wept. Well, three down.
1: And that's not, it's not even over
0: yet. So now the book tells us about the crew who attempts to make this in October 1955 to go through. And then they said the, the plate, the, the route that Shackleton traveled, because they were able to piece it together from their logs and in interviews and uh, understand it, they said they took the low road. I don't know how they did it. And they didn't mean like low altitude. They just meant the, the impossible route. I don't know how they did it, except that they had to. Three men of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration with 50 feet of rope between them and a carpenter's axe. So, uh, yeah. Unbelievable. Every comfort the whaling station could provide was placed at the disposal of Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean. They first enjoyed the glorious luxury of a long bath, followed by a shave. Then new clothes were given them from the station's warehouse. That night, after a hearty dinner, Worsley went on board the whale catcher Samson for the trip around South Georgia to to the camp where McNeish, McCarthy, and Vincent were waiting. The Samson arrived the following morning at King Hacken Bay, and very little was known about the meeting except that the three castaways first failed to recognize Worsley because his appearance was so drastically altered now that he was shaved and had on fresh clothes. McNeish, McCarthy, and Vincent were taken on board the whale-catcher, the Caird, and the Caird, too, was loaded. The Samson arrived back at Strom's the following day, May 22nd. Shackleton, meanwhile, had arranged for the use of a large wooden whaler, the Southern Sky— in which to return to Elephant Island for the relief of the party there. That evening, a sort of crude reception was held in what Worsley described as a large room full of captains and mates and sailors and hazy with tobacco smoke. Four white-haired veteran Norwegian skippers came forward. Their spokesman, speaking in Norse with sore translating, said that they had sailed the Antarctic seas for forty years, and that they wanted to shake the hands of the men who could bring an open twenty two foot boat from Elephant Island through the Drake Passage to South Georgia. Then every man in that room stood up, and the four old skippers shook Shackleton and Worsley and Crean by the hand and congratulated them on what they had done. Many of the whaler men were bearded and dressed in heavy sweaters and sea boots. There was no formality. No speeches. They had no medals or decorations to bestow, only their heartfelt admiration for an accomplishment which perhaps only they would ever fully appreciate. And their sincerity lent to the scene a simple but profoundly moving solemnity. Of the honors that followed, there were many. Possibly none ever exceeded the night of May 22, nineteen sixteen, when in a dingy warehouse, in a dingy warehouse shack on South Georgia, with the smell of rotting whale carcasses in the air, the whalemen of the Southern Sea stepped forward one by one and silently shook hands with Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean. The following morning, less than seventy-two hours after arriving at Stroms from across the mountains, Shackleton and his two companions set out for Elephant Island. It was the beginning of a maddeningly frustrating series of rescue attempts, lasting more than three months, during which the ice surrounding Elephant Island seemed resolutely determined that no rescue ship would get through to relieve the castaways. And now it tells of each ship trying to make it through, and then Shackleton has to give these ships back to whoever. He takes one through, and he's just so determined he pushes the ship through the ice and damages the ship. Before he gives it back to the owners, he continues to do that. He continues to summon England. He summons Chile, different nations. He says, give me a ship. You give me a ship. And then instead, he appealed to the Chilean government for use of an ancient seagoing tug. He promised not to take her into any ice because she was steelhold and her ability to weather the sea, much less any pack, was doubtful. So finally England says we're sending a proper ice ship down, which you know he has not been in. The endurance was not a proper ice ship either. And he's making his way. For the twenty two castaways on Elephant Island, august thirtieth began like any other day. At sunrise the weather was clear and cold, giving promise of a fine day. But before long heavy clouds rolled in, and the scene once more became, as Ordley's recorded, the heavy the prevailing gloom to which we are so now. It had been four months and six days since the carrot had left and there was not a man among them who still seriously believed that she had survived the journey to South Georgia. It was now a matter of time before a party was sent in the wills on the perilous journey to Deception Island. So they're going about their day. They're having their lunch. They have their hoosh In the hut, Marston, who had gone to the lookout bluff to make some thumbnail sketches, a few minutes later, they heard his footsteps running along the path, but nobody paid much attention. He was simply late for lunch, they thought. But then, with his head inside, he spoke to Wilde in a tone so breathless that some of the men thought he sounded casual. Hadn't we better send up smoke signals? He asked. For a moment, there was silence. And then, as one man, they grasped what Marston was saying. So they're just like, what? Hadn't we better send up smoke signals? And then all of a sudden, because they realized he was up at the bluff looking. There's this one little spot they would go and look from. Before there was time for a reply, Ordleys recorded, there was a rush of members tumbling over one another, all mixed up with mugs of seal hoosh making a simultaneously dive for the door hole, which was immediately torn to shreds, so that those members who could not pass through it, on account of the crush, made their exits through the wall, or what remained of it. Some put on their boots, others didn't bother. James put his on the wrong feet. Sure enough, there was a small ship, only about a mile offshore. Macklin dashed to the lookout bluff, tearing off his Burberry jacket as he ran. There he tied it onto the halyard of the oar, which served as the flagpole. But he was only able to hoist it part of the way up before the halyard jammed. Shackleton saw the signal at half-staff, and his heart sank. He later said because he took it as a sign that some of the party had been lost. So they saw it, he saw this thing go up to half-mast, and he thought, Oh no, they're telling me they're there, but some have died. Hurley gathered up all the cinegrass he could find, then poured it over some blubber oil and the two gallons of paraffin they still had, and he had a hard time lighting it, and when it finally ignited, almost with an explosion, it produced more flame than smoke. But no matter, the ship was headed toward the spit. Wilde, meanwhile, had gone to the water's edge and was signaling from there the best place to send in a boat. And Hal had broken a tin of precious biscuits and was offering them around. Few men, however, stopped to have one, and even so rare a treat held little appeal in the excitement of the moment. Macklin returned to the hut and lifted Blackburn to his shoulders, then carried him to a position on the rocks where, near wild, where he might better see the thrilling sight. The ship approached to within several hundred yards, then stopped. The men ashore could see a boat being lowered. Four men got into it, followed by a sturdy, square-set figure they knew so well. Shackleton. A spontaneous cheer went up. In fact, the excitement ashore was so intense that many men actually were giggling. Within a few minutes, the boat was near enough for Shackleton to be heard. "'Are you all right?' he shouted. "'Oh, well!' they replied. Wilde guided the boat to a safe place among the rocks, but because of the ice around the spit, it was impossible to make a landing, so the boat was held a few feet off. Wild urged Shackleton to come ashore, if only briefly, to see how they had fixed the hut in which they had waited four long months. But Shackleton, though he was smiling and obviously relieved, was still quite noticeably anxious and wanted only to be away. He declined Wild's offer and urged the men to get on board as quickly as possible. So he's been fighting the ice for three and a half months, to get to these guys. He do not want anything closing in behind them.
1: He's like, we are not doing this again.
0: Certainly no great urging was needed, and one at a time, they jumped from the rocks into the boat, leaving behind them, without a second thought, dozens of personal little items, which only an hour before had been considered almost indispensable. One load was rowed out to the ship, and then a second. Throughout it all, Worsley had watched anxiously from the bridge of the ship. Finally, he logged. 2.10 p.m. All well. At last. 2.15 p.m. Full speed ahead. Macklin wrote, I stayed on deck to watch Elephant Island recede in the distance. I could still see my Burberry jacket flapping in the breeze on the hillside. No doubt it will flap there to the wonderment of gulls and penguins till one of our familiar gales blows it all to ribbons.
1: And that is the end of Endurance Book One. The suffering is just beginning. Book Two comes soon.
0: (laughs) No, that's it. That is it. Yeah, thankfully there's no more saga once they leave the island. They made it. Shackleton led them there. And that is why Shackleton Shackleton set them free from it. And that is why the men called him the greatest leader ever to be on God's earth. And that is why they said, if you want speedy travel, Erickson. If you want scientific knowledge, Munson. But if you're in a desperate situation and there is no hope and there is no way out, Get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. It's Pretty legendary. Mm-hmm. So for us family leaders, endurance. You know, I often talk about the long path of marriage, the long journey of fatherhood, of family culture, of recognizing that it takes time. I use the analogy of a lawn. We want to see change. We want to see growth. We want to see progress in any particular number of areas. In our marriage, in our family culture, in our kids, in ourselves. But We've got to play the long game. And we have to be willing to be faithful to endure. To not give up. To not be unsatisfied with the little progress that we can make in front of us. Sometimes it's only the 60 seconds in front of you that you've got to focus on. Sometimes you've got to just get through the weekend. There are moments where things can be that dark and that difficult. But for the majority of us, raising our sights and having a big mission, having a big vision. So throughout it all, Shackleton's point is to protect these men, is to get them home alive. That's enough for him. We have a higher calling than just getting our wife and ourselves and our kids to to move forward and not die. We don't want this small life. We don't want a family culture that's built around, well, we're going to raise these kids, and someday they're going to move out, and someday it'll be just you and me, and someday we'll retire, and someday we'll die, and someday we'll go to heaven. That's not big enough. And we can't settle for a small vision. Because a small vision is not going to help you to endure the difficulties that are going to come. When you have a mighty calling, when you rise and wake up to the high calling of family leadership, when you see the value and the pride and the joy that comes from captaining your ship, from leading your family into a meaningful destination where you have developed values that matter, where you steer your family and you shape your family culture in such a way that you know that you're expanding the kingdom of God. You're doing everything you can do to see His will be done and His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Then you've got some strength. Then you have the promise of God to sustain you. He is with you till the end of the age. Whether that puts you in the Weddell Sea or whether that puts you uh, in the middle of dealing with three kids and diapers, or whether that puts you in the middle of conflict with your wife. No matter what you're facing, no matter where you are, the power to endure comes from God. And ultimately, it's not just the ability to survive, it's the ability to thrive. The thief has come to steal, to kill, and to, to destroy, to crush your marriage, to sink your family, to make you stranded and wandering, wandering from flow to flow to flow. But Jesus has come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. He is the Admiral. And he is the one who will guide you through any difficulty and any challenge. And he is the one who equips you. He is the one who has called you. He is the one who has made you the head of your wife. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of his wife. This is a high calling, a joyful calling. I know there was a lot of just the story of endurance throughout this podcast. But hopefully their story inspires you. Hopefully Shackleton's work as a leader inspires you to grow. Not as a leader of men in particular, but a leader of the family. Well, what you can't walk away from this with is thinking, man, if only I had a great adventure to go on. You do. Man, if only I had an incredible battle to fight. You do. If only I had a great destination and an epic voyage. You do. You married her. You had children. God has built a family And you have the pride and the blessing and the honor to lead them. This is your high calling, brother. Welcome to your voyage. Welcome to your epic adventure. It matters to God. He cares about you, and he cares about your marriage, and he cares about your family. Give yourself to this high calling. So that is going to sum it up. For this one, I would invite you to connect with me on Facebook. I'm also on Gab, so hit me up in either of those places. John Michael Clark. uh, I think on Gab, I'm the family captain. And then if you want help walking through your journey to build your family culture, to lead your family, to guide them, to shape that vision, to lead them to a meaningful destination, we can have that conversation as well. That's what I do. I coach guys. The program is called The Family Captain. And it is designed to help you build those things, to help you develop those things, to leave behind the, fr- the a frustrated sex life, to leave behind the confusion that so often revolves around family leadership for Christian men, because we have not been taught and it has not been made practical but instead to get clarity, to be the man that your wife wants to have sex with instead of the man she has to have sex with, and to know what it really looks like to lead your family with deliberate purpose. So I'd love to connect with you. And until next time, this is me and Elijah Fain. Bye. Telling you to lead your family with strength and love and captain your ship.